Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. Hello. about that, a little technical problem. Good evening. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. I am very excited to be continuing the Child Mind Institute series. It's an amazing um, series where we're featuring the, the wonderful psychologists from the Child Mind Institute here in New York. I'd first like to thank our sponsor, Mayor Johnson. They are your super source for special education um, resources, products, special uh, special needs resources. And, um, you know, for every problem, there's a solution. And you can go to mayorjohnson.com. And right now they're offering 20% off with um, Solution 20. You can put that in at checkout and get the discount and check out their website. It's just fantastic. Today, as we continue the series, we are going to be discussing post-traumatic stress and adjustment disorders in children. And um, with me is um, Dr. Jamie Howard. Uh, she is a clinical psychologist specializing in the evaluation and treatment of anxiety and mood disorders in children and adolescents. Um, she leads the Child's Mind Institute's Anxiety and Mood Disorder Center Trauma Response Group. And um, her expertise is in training post-traumatic stress and adjustment disorders across the um, lifespan. And this is, you know, a really important topic because I think so many parents um, overlook, um, you know, these issues in their children. So please let me welcome Dr. Jamie Howard. Howard, how are you? Good. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. Um, you know, I, I wanted to talk about two things. You know, we're going to be talking about um, post-traumatic stress disorder and adjustment disorders. So why don't we just start off by um, telling me if they are the same thing or if they're different, and then we'll go into what constitutes everything. Sure. So they're not the same thing. They're two separate diagnoses. Acute stress disorder is diagnosed two or three days after a traumatic event has occurred, up to one month after it has occurred. And post-traumatic stress disorder cannot be diagnosed until at least one month has passed after the traumatic event has occurred. And what about adjustment disorders? Are they the same? Is it just a different name? It's a it's sort of a sub-threshold diagnosis, and it can incorporate um, events that aren't, by definition, traumatic. So they can include significant stressors that don't meet the DSM criteria for traumatic events. Okay. Great. And I'm glad we cleared that up. Okay. So what would constitute a traumatic event? Because, you know, these kids are, so, are wired mm-hmm. so differently. All kids are wired so differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how can we really know what constitutes trauma for one and maybe not for another? So, um, mm-hmm. you know, what would constitute it? And can a traumatic event affect one child differently than another? Absolutely, it can. So a traumatic event is something that is threatening. Either you are hurt, you see someone get hurt, you feel that your life is in in danger, you see someone else's life be in danger, so there's an element of physical uh, harm or threat to bodily integrity, which is meant to capture uh, rape as a traumatic event. So first you have to have either toward yourself or to another some kind of injury or threat of harm. And then you also have to experience that event uh, with fear, helplessness, or horror. And so that's where the subjective component comes in. You can be in a car accident, for example, and think that your life is in danger and be horrified during it, and then it would count as a traumatic event. Or you could be in that same situation and think it's probably going to be just fine and not really think of it as something too horrifying, and then it wouldn't necessarily be a traumatic event. 
So I, I would imagine that the amygdala is um, really involved in all of this. Mm-hmm. Sure. There's there's the amygdala. There's all sorts of brain areas involved because there's a there's an interpretive component. How much am I in danger? And so that's some of the more cortical areas. Right. And you know I. My children have had uh, severe anxiety disorders, and I have one child uh, that has fibromyalgia now, um, which mm-hmm. is, affects the amygdala. Um, you know, and I know that you know it really is 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 just so difficult to regulate um, from kid to kid. Um, you know, what are some type of um, you know some typical um, and atypical reactions to trauma mm-hmm. that you would look for? So it's it's very typical to experience symptoms after a traumatic event, which is why we don't make diagnoses of acute stress disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder or adjustment difficulties until some time has elapsed. So it's very normal when the traumatic event happens to experience an increased heart rate or sweating, to be hyper alert, to feel uh, sort of emotionally upset, to have butterflies in your stomach, to be tearful or anxious. Um, some other things that we see with with the younger children are being kind of clingy, worrying about separating from their parents. After Superstorm Sandy, we saw lots of kids who were worried about the safety of their pets as well. Um, trauma-themed play and drawings and conversations. Sometimes with younger kids, we'll see a return to um, earlier behaviors. So, for example, if they used to suck their thumb, but then they grew out of it, they might start doing that again. And with older kids, we'll see things like risky behaviors. So we sometimes see an increase in stealing or fighting or substance use, um, sort of withdrawing from the family after a traumatic event. And when these things happen in the immediate aftermath, a few days, a few weeks after, we think of it as, as pretty typical And then it can become atypical um, when there is something we call functional impairment, which means that uh, these symptoms are are severe enough and intense and lasting long enough to interfere with kids' jobs. Their jobs are to go to school, to do the best they can when they're there, to make and keep their friends and to play and enjoy their life. And when those three areas of functioning are impaired, that's when we get a bit more concerned that a child might benefit from some kind of a treatment. And, you know, what is the diagnostic criteria? You know, we know the DSM is changing um, soon. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so I guess my first question would be, are there going to be any changes to the criteria? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, my um, question also was, um, is, you know, an acute stress disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder in children, um, do they have different criteria than adults in the DSM? So in the current DSM-4, the the criteria are are pretty much similar for adults and children, and they're trying to change that in DSM-5, and and there's been a lot of research dedicated to figuring out the best ways to change it in DSM-5. So we're we're all really hopeful, and it seems promising that there are going to be some changes. Um, As of right now, for acute stress disorder in DSM-4, there's a heavy emphasis on a symptom called dissociation and that is sort of a foggy, daisy kind of presentation where kids look like they're not paying attention or just kind of out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're getting rid of that in DSM-5, or at least that's the recommendation from the working group because we don't necessarily see that. And if we're mandating that that be present in order to get a child treatment, then we're missing some kids that would benefit from treatment. Oh, that's great. But Yes, it is great. So there's going to be a list of the symptoms that we tend to see in the aftermath of a trauma. 
and then you just have to have four, three, four, or five of those symptoms. It's not clear yet which it's going to be. And then if you have those, that number, plus the functional impairment, um, then you will meet criteria for acute stress disorder and be able to get treatment. And we have some great new treatments for acute stress disorder. Okay, great. So um, that's great. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, um, you know, about the DSM, actually. Um, although, you know, I do want to say that, you know, there is that trauma glazed overlook. I mean, we had a tragedy a few years ago. My son was killed in a car accident. And, um, you know, I had to sit down and tell my daughters, and you know, they had that glazed look in their eyes for, for months. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I'm really sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah, you know, so, you know, that is something that, you know, you do see right away. Um, you know, but like you said, it's, you know, not all kids do get that. That's um, what it is. It's some do, not all. Well, that's why it must be so hard um, in your position because, you know, this is so subjective, just like all, you know, mental illnesses, you know, that it's really like a spectrum. So, you know, it must be very hard if you see a child that, you know, maybe has three um, really predominant features of the disorder, but, you know, doesn't have the five or whatever number is mm-hmm. necessary. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it can be challenging. If there's a critical number, then we can still we can still administer treatments and help the family and help the child. So, so that's the good news. Is you know, with post traumatic stress disorder, we want to look for three types of symptoms. Uh, they're called re-experiencing symptoms, where kids and grown-ups too have intrusive thoughts about the traumatic event, and that can look like. Um, nightmares. It can look like just suddenly um, seeing something that was present at the day of the trauma and it reminds you of the trauma. And sometimes they pop into your head out of nowhere. And then we see, we also look for avoidance. So that is Mm -hmm. stuff like avoiding um, people and places and activities uh, that remind you of the trauma. Um, So, for example, in Newtown, some of the kids are are likely wanting to avoid driving past the school. Some some of the grown-ups, too. And in the beginning, that's pretty typical. But then if it continues and it's present with other symptoms and it interferes with their life, then that's when we know that it's, it's um, causing them some difficulties. Um, some other stuff in, a, in addition to void, avoidance that we look for is something we call um, restricted affect, which is which means you just are more emotionally numb. You don't express the same range of emotions that you used to. Happiness or sadness, there's mm-hmm. sort of a numb quality. And then there's also something called arousal. So uh, difficulty sleeping, getting really irritable, and having a quick startle response. If you, know, if you hear a car backfiring, you really jump. Um, and something called hypervigilance, where you're really mindful of your surroundings and really watching around you to see if there's any danger lurking. You know, so as far as post-traumatic, I mean, acute stress disorder is up to a month. But with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, you know, for how long, um, you know, at what point do you start to say, okay, you know, this is now, um, you know, going on and we need to have this evaluated? Mm -hmm. So I would say if it's been four to six weeks, and you're worried about your child and his or her ability to go to school and and keep friends and enjoy life has been impaired, then then get an evaluation. Um, the, the other thing about PTSD is it can sometimes take a while to manifest. So 
We know this from even from Vietnam veterans. There are some that just recently have come in for treatment. There there can be a a delayed presentation. So for some of them, it's been there and it's taken a long time to get treatment. Um, But for some people, it it actually takes several months for PTSD to sort of manifest. You know, you mentioned avoidance, and, um, you know, it made me think a bit of obsessive-compulsive disorder, which is a very different um, disorder, but, um, you know, um, a very age-appropriate and very gentle exposure and response often helps um, kids, um, you know, much more than talk therapy with OCD. Would this be counterproductive in a child with post-traumatic stress, or is this something that um, you would do? So that's a really good point. Exposure is the gold standard for OCD, and exposure is actually the gold standard for all anxiety disorders, and PTSD is an anxiety disorder. So it wouldn't be counterproductive. Something that happens is... um, the fight-or-flight response is going when when a traumatic event occurs. And there are certain things in the environment that get paired with that fight-or-flight response. And then you end up starting to avoid those things because they bring about the fight-or-flight response. So, for example, I worked with a little girl once who um, a billboard fell on her because of the wind. And when it was windy, she would get really scared and want to stay inside because it reminded her of when the billboard fell on her and that was traumatic for her. So what we did was we gently exposed her to wind. We'd start by having her stand out on the porch close to the door and go in and then we'd have her gradually get further out by herself in the wind to disprove this idea that all wind is dangerous and that she's really unsafe out in the wind. It really does work very well. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you also mentioned um, restricted affect. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, how how would a parent um, distinguish this from depression, and how would you um, be able to tell, um, you know, if this is a restricted affect or if the child Mm -hmm. is depressed? Mm -hmm. So if they have restricted affect, they might look depressed. They might look sort of withdrawn, like they're not... Um, experiencing happiness like a depressed person, but they have to also have the re-experiencing symptom along with it. That's sort of what differentiates PTSD from depression, or it can also look like ADHD if they have all of the the hyperarousal symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, So if they have the arousal and the avoidance, that can look like depression or ADHD, but they have to have that re-experiencing symptom along with it which is to have an intrusive thought, to be really upset about the memory of the trauma. And that's how we can uh, differentiate. It's it's also possible that you can have both depression and PTSD. So, you know, we spoke a little, you spoke a little bit about, um, you know, some of the symptoms, but what would you say for, um, say, a teacher or a parent? What would be some really red flags that the child is just not able to cope and get um, past the trauma? Mm-hmm. Well, so some some red flags are you want to know when the trauma happened and you want to to keep track of the time. So if it's been a certain duration, if it's been four, six, eight weeks and the child is um, sort of spacey in school and, and their grades have dropped, right? Um, they They used to hang out a lot with some friends in the class or friends in the neighborhood and they've stopped accepting invitations to go over to their house. And, they, and they're not doing sleepovers. And they used to really enjoy playing soccer, but now they don't have much interest in it. So you want to look at those changes in their day-to-day living 
in combination with the awareness that a trauma happened, and then if if you're concerned that there's a connection there to bring them in to get an assessment, because you won't you can't necessarily see intrusive thoughts. You have to ask, and so we do say ask open-ended questions. Um, mm-hmm. Let them know they can come to you whenever they want to to talk about the trauma. It takes it takes time for kids. They take in just a little bit at a time. Um, so you want them to have this this opportunity to come to you as needed. And I would imagine and, that, you know, depending on the age, that they might not even be able to really process, um, mm-hmm. you know, th- their fears. Um, you know, I, I was once told the worst thing to say to a child that's experiencing um, um, this type of uh, discomfort after a trauma is, you know, just don't ever say you're being silly. Don't ever say don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that you really need to validate for them that what they're feeling is, you know, real, you know. Absolutely. And you want to encourage them to talk about it and to talk about it with their natural emotions attached. So if they're saying, I was really scared, then to let them express feeling really scared as they're telling it, because that's how you get around the emotional numbing. If they can tell their narrative or tell the story of what happened and tell it with all the emotions that are associated with it, that will help them to recover in, in the most healthy way. Right. And I know that um, you know drawing pictures um, is also very helpful um, for young children. Mm-hmm. So that's something I, I I've been working with a little girl who was present at um, Sandy Hook on the day of the shooting, and her mom has given me permission to talk a little bit about what treatment has been like for her. And she was drawing a lot of pictures. And, and so when you, when you create a narrative, because that's the, the purpose of trauma treatment, is to decrease avoidance um, and to create a narrative to make meaning, to restore your view that the world is safe and somewhat predictable. And so you can do that with grown-ups through talking or through writing. And with kids, you want to be more creative. So she did a lot of drawing because she's very artistic and she's seven, and that's where her interest lie. And she drew a lot of pictures of guns and, and blood and people on the ground. Um, and and while it's upsetting to see that, that's actually very normal. That's her way of trying to make sense of it mm-hmm. and to create a narrative. And through that, we were able to see where she was getting stuck in her narrative. So you know, we might have, as adults, um, sort of projected our own worries onto her, and we might have said, you must have felt so unsafe. But she actually explained, I didn't feel unsafe that day because we locked the door. Or maybe she said they put a chair in front of the door. Somehow she felt safe that the door was inaccessible to the gunman. Mm-hmm. But what she was really concerned about was whether or not her te- her former teacher, who had passed away in the shooting, uh, was safe now. Or if, or if there were guns in heaven. And so that's where she was getting stuck. And through drawing and, and talking and asking lots of open-ended questions, we were able to get at that and help her because what she really needs was to talk to, she happens to be Catholic, so she needed to talk to her priest to learn that there are no guns in heaven and her teacher's safe now. It's, it's so important. I'm so glad you told that story because, um, you know, I found that too, that, um, you know, what you may think is um, really causing them this trauma and this shock um, really can be so different than what it really is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and even trying to explain, you know, like say there's a death of, you know, in our case, a sibling or, you know, mm-hmm. a parent or it could even be a grandparent. Um, you know, it's surprising what their fears are versus mm-hmm. what, um, you know, an adult would fear. 
So, you know, it's so important um, to really That's let right. them lead you. So what are the best practices for treating trauma-related disorders in children? Um, mm-hmm. You know, give me some examples of, like, at different stages or ages and um, how the treatment may dif- differ right after a trauma versus after time has passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the gold standard treatment is called trauma-focused CBT, so trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, and you can modify it to different developmental levels. For adolescents, you can also use some adult treatments, and the two gold standard treatments for adults and late adolescents are cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure. And so what's similar, the theme amongst all of these, is is this idea of exposure because you want to gently expose people to the source of what they're avoiding so that they don't avoid their own memories or uh, aspects of the trauma that are out in the world. Um, And this will help them to accept the reality of the situation so that they don't feel like they always have something in the back of their head um, that could trigger them at any moment, and then to create meaning of the event. So it's sort of to derive an explanation that maintains a safe worldview. Um, so, so for kids, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, so for kids, we want before we jump right into that, we spend a lot of time in trauma-focused CBT teaching them relaxation strategies like progressive muscle relaxation and and deep breathing. Um, we also teach we make sure that they know they have some language for emotions so that they can label their emotions, and we give them sort of the rules. You can have different intensities of emotions, and and you can have more than one emotion at a time. We teach them some coping, like positive self-talk and talking to a grown-up when you're feeling really worried. So we want to make sure that they have sort of a foundation um, of coping before we jump into these more um, intense interventions. So cognitive processing therapy, is it the same as um, CBT, cognitive behavioral Mm -hmm. therapy, or is there um, a little twist to it? So cognitive processing therapy is heavier on the cognitive component. So it's a lot about um, creating a narrative and in that noticing certain stuck points. So where you have um, what we call distortions or um, uh, sort of inaccurate beliefs. Um, So for example, um, I worked a lot with uh, returning veterans and some of Sometimes they would um, have, they would look back on an event and feel guilty, for example, thinking, you know, sort of applying a, a civilian time mentality to a wartime mentality. So we had to help them to relinquish the guilt and uh, remember that uh, they had strict orders to kill. Um, it was wartime. It was unclear if they were insurgents. And, and so that sort of straightening out their narrative in that way to, to relinquish guilt is an example. So um, how long, I mean, I know that this definitely not going to be a magic number. The kids are all so different. But about how long um, does it usually take to see um, some improvement after the child has um, started, you know, CPT or um, exposure and response? Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we start to see some changes um, pretty early on. A lot of times we'll, we'll say about 12 weeks, but that's if it's an uncomplicated case, meaning there weren't any previous traumas and the family's on board and the family is participating in the treatment mm-hmm. because we really True. need 
the parents involved because we're trying to get kids to open up and talk about this traumatic event and be really comfortable doing so. And we need to explain that to parents because that can seem um, counterintuitive to them. Like, oh, no, we should probably just not talk about it, right? That, you know, it might make it worse if they talk. So we need to make sure that what we're doing in treatment can be generalized outside of the home. Uh, and that can influence how quickly the, the the symptom reduction happens. Yeah, which is so why it's so important that we really encourage educators to listen to these shows. Um, you know, because sometimes the trauma may be caused by a family member or someone in the mm-hmm. household. Mm-hmm. And it's really important that educators are aware of these signs, um, you know, so that they can identify it in a child as well. Um, is there a genetic predisposition um you know, is is a child that maybe has a family history of anxiety um, more predisposed to have post-traumatic stress disorder? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's still somewhat unclear. We can't say definitively about the genetics, but we do know that there are certain characteristics that make kids at risk, and being anxious or having sort of an inhibited temperament uh, is a risk factor. Previous trauma exposure can be a risk factor. Having anxious parents, either through the genes or through the modeling and the environment, um, how how dangerous and how directly exposed they were to the trauma it can be a risk factor for difficulties in recovery, and then what happens after the trauma is over. So, is does the community come together? Uh, are routines maintained or reestablished? Do the parents and teachers appear calm? All of these things can influence um, how recovery goes for kids. Right. Um, you know, what do you think of um, some of the alternative approaches that people are using, the EMDR, the uh, I think it's mm-hmm. eye movement desensitization mm-hmm. um, and reprocessing and tapping? Um, you know, I know that for a while that a lot of people um, had a lot of uh, hopes with that. So, you know, mm-hmm. what do you think of those techniques? Mm-hmm. Well, so some of the data in the randomized control trials show that it is effective Um, I know at the National Center for PTSD, where I trained and did my postdoc, they were looking at dismantling the the intervention to look at its component parts. And what they sort of concluded is that it's the exposure element of EMDR that is likely to be the the reason why it's effective. Because we don't have any sort of a priori idea about why uh, moving your eyes from one direction to the other would be helpful. We don't mm-hmm. sort of have a, a mechanism to to say why that should be helpful, but the data is showing that it is. So one hypothesis coming from the National Center for PTSD is that it's because as you're doing the eye movement, you're telling the narrative, which is exposure to the memory. I know we we did the tapping um, actually, and um, it, it it really helped with um, uh, school avoidance. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, we never really continued it, but you know, I know people have success doing different things. Um, mm-hmm. I know that there was something there was something that you had mentioned before that um, I wanted to follow up on, and now I'm just drawing a blank on it. But um, um, we were talking about in in referring to the um, the young children. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you, oh, I remember what it was. You were talking about that they can become clingy. So mm-hmm. how does a parent know? Um, you know, say the child wants to sleep in the parent's bed, and, mm-hmm. you know, that's not the norm. Um, or, you know, the, the child gets very upset if the mother wants to, you know, run for an errand. Mm-hmm. You know, how how tender do parents have to be with this? 
Mm-hmm. Well, so you want to provide a lot of reassurance in the immediate aftermath of a trauma, and by immediate, I'd say the first few days up to the first month or so. But after that, you really want to get back to your routine and reestablish routines if your routine isn't is is sort of not going to work for you anymore. Um, it's it's not good for children to develop superstitious beliefs that I'm only safe or I'm only comfortable. I'll only be okay if I'm sleeping in bed with mom and dad because it's just not true, and then it can cause other problems in the family. So for something like that, for symptoms of separation anxiety, you would do a treatment um, for separation anxiety where you'd gradually expose kids to being away from their parents in a gentle way and and provide reinforcements and rewards for being brave. Well, Dr. Howard, thank you so much for joining us. Um, You know, can you just tell us where um, we can reach you? Absolutely. I am at Childmind Institute, and you can reach us at childmind.org. we have lots of great information. It's a really great resource. We compile all sorts of information to make it a single destination for parents and teachers who are interested in children's mental health. It is one of my favorite websites. Oh, thank you. It really is. Are you um, involved with the blog? Do you um, have um, expert advice tips on there? I do. I do. I have um, a page. All of all of us have a page, all the clinicians, and we all take turns responding to parents who write in, and, and we write articles, and, and we really try to contribute to our mission for public education. Yeah, I, I mean, I say it all, I say it all the time. Um, it is my number one pick um, to recommend to parents to go to. It's just fantastic. So I thank you for joining us. I look forward thank to, you. I think I have two more, two more um, interviews for the series. So thank you very much. I appreciate you joining me. Yes, thank you. I appreciate you having me. And again, I'd like to thank Mayor Johnson for sponsoring the show. If you'd like to learn more about the Coffee Clatch and um, our shows, we have three new shows starting next month. You can go to www.thecoffeeclatch.com, click on About, go to Team, and you click on any host, and it'll tell you about the new show. You are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent right here at the Coffee Clatch. Have a great weekend, everyone.